0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue episode number 438. My name is Minter and I'm your host for this podcast. Importantly, I have big news. I'm delighted to announce that I have joined Evergreen Podcasts, an emerging network powered by a diverse team of bona fide professionals, experienced podcast hosts and knowledgeable experts. Evergreen carefully creates and curates the podcasts in its network, providing content from leading brands and thought leaders in a wide variety of industries. Their creative marketing and distribution solutions help unite audiences with authentic voices. By joining Evergreen, it will potentially give my show new avenues of growth, help to improve the quality, and ensure that I can sustain it going forward. Moving on to this show, this episode is with Richard Stone. Richard is CEO of StoryWork International and has dedicated his career to the power of storytelling. He is co-author with Scott Livengood of the new book Story Intelligence, Master Story, Master Life. In this conversation, we discuss what it is about storytelling that is so forceful, able to change our minds and shift our energies. We look at how stories can be used to heal and to live a more satisfying life. We explore how society is suffering from destorification and how we can build resilience through storytelling. You'll find all the show notes on Minterdile.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Richard. Richard Stone. Tell me a story. (laughs) (laughs) You are Mr. Story, having written so many great books. And I was enraptured by your last book, uh, Story Intelligence Master Story, Master Life. So I, I was wondering you know, as much as you talk about stories in life and human beings, has been our common currency for quite some time. Why is it? that we're still talking about making good stories today.
1: Well, the question might be, maybe the, the, the deeper question would be, what does it mean to be a human being? And has, has that changed any since the beginning of whenever that was, whenever you know we, we evolved into Homo sapiens, whatever that thin line was where we went over a threshold. And um, in my mind is that uh, we have evolved, our brains, all of who we are has evolved as with story. And we could not have evolved in the way we evolved without story, Mm. Uh, we would be very different kinds of creatures. And I think that our brain almost in a stair step manner has has evolved with the the telling and listening to stories. Mm. And so we are fundamentally story creatures. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, Descartes, when he, he said, I think, therefore I am, I think he, I think he had the wrong, the wrong kind of end of the stick. It's really, I story, therefore I am. And it is that which really, I think distinguishes us as human beings is that, is that we are constantly telling stories, making up stories, hearing and living in other stories, swimming in stories and we define our lives by the stories that we tell about ourselves and about others and the world and um and we transform our lives through a process of storying our lives um so story i think may be the most powerful force in the universe and maybe more powerful than gravity
0: <laughs> well you
1: you certainly extol its benefits we're going to get
0: into that and you talk about the human narare. As opposed to the human sapiens. And, and referring to Descartes, uh, it's interesting this idea of I think, therefore I am. There are some that might say I do, therefore I am. Yeah. But the, the issue, and maybe why stories are so important today, is that we forgot to be.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have such a, a, a predilection in our Western culture about doing. Exactly. And having so we we have this little model that we have evolved, we call it be do have. Mm -hmm. And, and my partner, Scott, will always say, tell me, tell me about where you put the priority on those three words, and I will tell you about your life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, so we have a great deal of emphasis on having in this Mm -hmm. world today. And so I want to have that I want to have the new house, I want to have the new car, I want to have the new whatever it is um, and, and then the question is, what do I need to do to have that? And we have been sold a bill of goods that by um doing these things to have these things, then we will be fulfilled human beings. and we will be. and we and then we will be happy and fulfilled. And of course, that is never the case because there's it's a it's an ever ending because there's always a bigger house. There's always somebody has more that we're comparing ourselves to. So what we say is if you can figure out who you are, who you want to be and become and, and act out of that center, uh, good things will come. You, you, you will have a quality of life. Uh, it may not be the picture of what you thought it was going to be, right? Uh, but it will have a richness and depth and and you will be much more at peace with who you are and the world around you. Uh, So we have to get real clear very quickly, you know, where are we on that continuum of be, do have, Mm -hmm. Uh, where are we putting the focus of our life? And um, we, it it is hard because as young people, we receive so many messages about this Mm -hmm. is what it means to be successful. This is what it means to make your way in the world. And, um, and we really have a model for us who says, no, 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 no. Here's the way to be, first you need to figure out who you want to be. <laughs> and uh, I've been mentoring a couple of uh, people here at Georgia Tech here in Atlanta as part of a program. And one of the one of the young men is just a remarkable guy, and he really understands this. And uh, he, he just did a internship for the summer, and I think he's gonna get a job offer when he re- gets finished graduating this year at a company in California that's a startup making, Electric vehicles and which is and he uh, he has a big passion to make a difference in the world and but he's asking himself, am I going to take the job because it's going to be paying me a lot of money, Uh, you know, which is sort of enticing or am I doing it because it's more in line with who I want to become. And, and he thinks, or am I just going to justify and say, well, I think a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah, I'll sell my soul a little so I can make a lot of money right now. Right. Maybe get stock options and all the other stuff. And then I can, that.
0: then I can use that money to do what I really want to do.
1: Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I, I have someone close in my life who early on made a decision to make a lot of money. So then he could be happy, you know, then he could do what he wanted to do with his life. And, and i'm not sure that turned out as well as he would have liked um he did he f- didn't follow his heart he followed a path that looked like the right you know that was the model you make a lot of money then you can so uh, it, these are not easy questions for us existentially <laughs> yeah well know, we I mean, that's why with them.
0: that's why you need a new book master life right
1: well that's so, right so how do you become a master of your life and um and I, and every choice uh, eliminates other other possibilities. And so one of the things we talk about is that we have to figure out what is our, what we call your master story. What is the thing that deeply calls you? And, and if you can figure out what that is, and we think you can figure that out without a lot of um, perspiration, and you don't have to go through years of hard trial and error. I think you uh, we have lots of uh, clues that are all around us. If you can figure that out, um, that tells you at least what highway to get on. Mm. You know, if you think of this, uh, you know, there's all these arteries coming into into the city. Um, Which road do I take? (laughs) You know, is it it this one or that one? Now, you you say, I think it's this one based on what I know about who I am. Now, within that highway, that's a pretty wide, there's a lot of wide latitude in there. Well, by the way, there are lots of exits. There are lots of exits. There's lots of exits, little side trips you can make. But that that road takes you north, you know? It doesn't take you southeast or west. And you're going into a terrain that's very different than the other roads would take you. But there's a lot of possibilities even within that. Mm. Um, So I think that becomes the key um, task for us in life is to figure out what road should we be on? uh, And uh, where, uh, you know, Aristotle said that our vocation and what I think he's talking about the same thing I'm talking about is at the intersection of your deepest uh, uh, gifts and talents with the needs of the world. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And uh, when we can hit that sweet spot where we can be who we are, and it it somehow meets uh, where the world needs us right now, um, that's, uh, I think you're humming. (laughs) It's It's like the icky guy
0: you talk about.
1: That's right. You know, what gives us the deepest sense of purpose? That's a Japanese concept. You know, what gives your life deep purpose? Um that you're good at and that the market wants to pay for. Well, yeah, and and that's that's a tricky formula. You the, the marketplace doesn't always respond to who we are, you know? It has its own it has you know, and the marketplace is about having, right? <laughs> you know. Of course. Yeah, so at least the capitalistic marketplace is more about having rather than doing good. Um, so I think that if you're artistically inclined, I, I've been an artist and a writer all my life. Right. Photography, and, right? And photography, and um, you know, there's a marketplace for all that stuff too. There's a marketplace for books. And and the marketplace. Uh, doesn't always recognize genius or quality or good ideas. Uh, it, it often operates on different criteria. So and, te- uh, tell me tell me if,
0: where I'm wrong on this, because I feel that the idea of doing good, I mean, who doesn't want to do good? And, and uh, the issue is I feel like we're displacing on the idea of doing good rather than think of who I am. And so, oh, that's a good thing to do. I can save poor people. I can feed hungry people. I can change this and I can do good. And, and rather than focus on who I am, they run after that kind of doing, which is kind of a cooler do than just, you know, do business to make money to have the big house. I'm doing good. But I, I'm I forgot to actually think about who I am in the first place.
1: That's right. You know, and that's that's putting the do at the at the beginning of the do the be do have. That's meant putting the do first. Uh, to give you an example, uh, in the world of sustainability, which is a hot topic today, uh, the UN came out a few years ago with 17 sustainable development goals. And probably a lot of the listeners maybe are familiar with those. And and um and so I, I do a lot of work with people who are involved with those. Uh, there's a thing called the Regional Centers for Expertise who are all over the world who are working on this. And I was asked to give a talk and I realized there was there, there was, there was a, um, a goal that was missing, which was the human spirit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, that was goal zero, which was developing the human spirit. And And if you don't do the work, the inner work of figuring out who you are, then it becomes like, oh my gosh, there are so many things that have to be done in this world. Uh, I, you know, I, you know, I've got to save the children. I got to save the whales. I got to, I got to, you know, and there's this poverty and there's the inequality going on here. And, and so where, where do you plant yourself? And if you don't know who you are, then you're on, um, you're on an empty journey that will lead to burnout. I, th- I think. Yeah. And so one of the things I, I talk about, especially when I'm talking to that audience is that figure out who you are first. And then, um, then act out of that, and and choose where, where where do you want to plant your flag, and and maybe in this one little area, but it's an area where you will have maximal impact, and you will find uh, that you'll have heart, and and it, you'll be able to sustain the effort, because it's it's expressing who you are in the world, and so there's so much uh, you know, uh, we can all become Mother Teresa or right. try to be Mother Teresa, but it won't work, because um, it's not authentic. It's not rooted in something. Yeah, it, for her, it, it, it was authentic. Yeah. And so she was able to do so much because it authentically was rooted in who she was as someone who, who felt called to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have to figure out what is that calling first, um, and then look at the needs of the world and say, where is it that I can, you know, make the most impact? and. And I, I try to think, uh, there's a, a is it Thurman, who's a, a theologist here. He, he was a wonderful guy. And he said, you know, what the world most needs from us today is to really figure out who we are and go out and be that mm-hmm. <laughs> first. <laughs> you know, if we all did that, the world, we'd probably be in fine shape.
0: So the way I, I was, when I listened to your book, you, you uh, with you speaking, right, you were the narrator. Um, you have the idea of the stories that we carry around in our head, the little stories of, of our past, you know, I'm no good, or um, I've always done this. And, and then, the, so I, I kind of think of that as one thing, like dealing with our past stories. And, and that's a, a thing we got to deal with. And then as far as our future is concerned, the thing which I feel we suffer from is actually not having a precise story. We all have this idea that we wanna progress, we wanna be healthy, happy, uh, wealthy, maybe, why not? And and so, but it's it's just not a precise master vision that they have, a master story, like your highway. It's like, well, I, I don't mind, maybe I can hedge my bets. I can take highway 95, 97, 99, and 92 and 93.
1: Yeah, maybe one of them will work out.
0: <laughs> exactly. And and so we're stuck between this baggage we're, we're trundling around, not dealing with, not exposing, not it, you know, managing it, and and then trying to do everything because that's what society tells me. That's what my parents wanted me to do. That's what I thought I needed to do. And so all these avenues are there in the future. And, and as and then especially when you're educated, you're like, oh well, I can do all this. So you rationalize all this stuff. And, and there we are stuck in the middle and we get frustrated because we're not getting anywhere.
1: Yeah, so this is this falls in the territory. Uh, well, there's, there's a couple of things I wanna say about that. First, uh, there's retrospective thinking, which is these stories about the past. And then there is prospective thinking, which is about the future. And you're right. We are not very practiced and precise when we think about the future. Now, what's so interesting is that the areas of the brain that are involved with retrospection are also the areas of, of prospection. <laughs> they use a lot of the same functionality. Uh-oh. Cross so, wires. Well, well, you know, because and that's why often it's very hard for us not to just to replicate what we did in the past, because we can't think beyond that, because we have an image that's very powerful and ingrained and wired in. So um this gets into the question of imagination and our capacity to imagine with precision. And, you know, we, we, there, there's too many variables in the future to, you know, to say exactly what's going to happen because always something that if we're not capable of taking into account everything. And then there's always these unexpected things that are, I mean, never and thankfully,
0: of, frankly, yeah, because if, yeah, if everything, thing, was you know, life, life rose, or, you know, yeah.
1: You know, um, you know, there's an old saying God uh, man plans and God laughs you know because <laughs> you know uh, you know yeah good but we do know through research now that we can become better imaginers. And I think that story is the language of imagination. So there's one study that was done with college students and they asked uh, one group to say, just imagine you got an A on the, on on this course. okay great. And then they asked the uh, another group, imagine the process you would have to go through to get an A in this class. So now we're asking people to get much more precise in their, their prospection, yeah. their envisioning. And it turns out that that group performed much better than the other group and actually did better in the class. So I think that this is a muscle that requires um, some um, exercise. Uh, there probably are a number of things you can do to become much more precise and better at it. And the more you do it and the more you do it with um, with intention, I think the better you become and the better your results. Um, and there will always be surprises, as we said. It will never be exactly as you imagine, but you will become much more um, masterful. And that's why we get into this notion of masterful at... Um, at authoring your life story as opposed to having your life story authored either by the past being a replication of everything that happened before or being authored by society or your your social group or the stories that you've been schlepping along through your life from that your parents uh you inherited through your parents um and uh, so one of the things that we talk a lot about is that, is, is that there is value in the past. So let's not, um, we, we don't want to denigrate the past, uh, but we say there's trash and there are treasures there. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and distinguishing the treasures from the trash is important. Uh, there are some treasure stories that can inform and provide resilience for you and, and can help you in tough times. And yes, and then there's some trash. There's stuff that we have taken in that's not true, that's not helpful, that's not useful. But we're we're kind of it's a baggage, you know, what we often refer to as baggage. We're carrying it along and it's weighing us down, and we keep using it as a reference point for how we should behave and act, and it doesn't work out very well because but
0: sometimes that trash per your story of crippled Joe is is just the wrong version of the past it's
1: that's right. the exact
0: same story but through that magical work that the, the mother did uh, reconverted a trash into a treasure
1: yeah so that just for your listeners real quickly it's a story about uh, a, a really wonderful storyteller here in the united states uh um and Donald Davis and his father at a very young age had an accident. This is in 1905 and ended up with a, a hatchet in his knee. And, you know, there was, and his father, you know, had to take, it was the, 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 the town doctor wanted to amputate and he said, no way. And they ended up on a train, ironically, coming to Atlanta from somewhere in East North Carolina, uh, in a, the tertiary care hospital here, that's the big hospital had just opened and the doctor saved his leg, but he always walked with a limp. But he returned and uh, his story, his conclusion was that he was going to be a cripple his whole life and his life was ruined. And his mother each day made him retell the story through the eyes of different people involved in this event. Tell the story from the point of view of the nurses who helped you at Grady Hospital. Now tell the story from the doctors. What did the doctor learn from working with you? What did your dad learn from taking you on that journey? And this went on and on and on and on. And at first he didn't want to tell the story. He says, I'm just going to be a cripple. My life is ruined. Why should I tell the story? And at some point, you know, she said, what, what do you get to do that your brothers and sisters don't get to do? And, and he suddenly realized he got to read all day. And, and at some point he realized, which, Telling by the it, way, is actually a good thing, right? Because today, people generally, generally people are reading enough. reading is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but yeah, and, and so the trajectory of his life, he recognized, he said, putting that atchet in my knee was the best thing that ever happened to me. And and he realized as an adult, he said, if that had not happened, I'd still be plowing the plowing the, the, the back 40. And he went on to become the town banker and had a very successful life that was you know an entirely different trajectory. And so the story we tell about difficult matter uh, situations, what we often do is there's what happened. And then there's a conclusion that we append on what happened. So there's the story of what happened. And then what it means is what we add to it. And that meaning often gets sort of rigidified and that becomes part of the story. And then we start living out of that meaning. And so living without that conclusion, are asking the question, could I have had a different conclusion? Could this have meant something? Could this have been a good thing, maybe? And and probably all of us know people, for example, who have come down with difficult illnesses, cancer. And we wouldn't wish that on anyone. And yet I know many people who will say, cancer was a teacher for me. And it changed the trajectory of my life. It made me value life more. And suddenly I made some decisions that I might not have made. Um, And um, I was working, personally, I was working in a job and I went in, I had to have a diaphragmatic, I had a hernia, a diaphragmatic hernia, and I decided to get it repaired. And the doctor, while he's in there, he's working orthoscopically, you know, with how they work. And uh, he found a little lesion on my liver and he took a picture of it, gave it to my wife. And so there I am in in, the, in my in my room and my wife comes in and she's showing me pictures and she's, oh, and this is a lesion on your liver. And he doesn't think it's cancerous, but we don't know until they get it by. So that first night I'm thinking, oh, you know, this could be it. And And it turned out this was right before the Christmas holidays and he was going away. I did not know for two weeks whether I had cancer or not. And so as I was recouping and going out for walks, uh, you know, the next days uh, my wife said, she said, if it's cancerous, would you stay where you're working? And I said, absolutely not. I, you know, it was very clear to me that I needed to leave there and it turned out not to be cancerous, but just the idea that it could be was informing for me. It told me, it allowed me to say what's important. And and instead of being passive and sort of waiting for something to happen, I took the you know the bull by the horns, as they say in the United States, and uh, and, and made a decision to leave.
2: The
0: world's best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, "Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway." Download, buy, hold, sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. And uh, it does strike me that, especially since we're in this existential crisis, this kind of notion is coming up at different scales. But especially when you've had a life-changing experience, or you're close to it—in other words, someone close to you dies—or, or maybe you're diagnosed with a malady that's incurable all of a sudden, you, you get the picture, like, oh, actually, life is short. And I do need to do shit that matters. I want to be me. I'm not going to I'm not interested in having a big house, because actually, I can't live in it anymore. You know, I'm only going to be destined to live in a small room, because I can't move around anymore. And then afterwards, it's in a small box. So, all right, I better change things around. And But it takes almost having it to get the change. Whereas if you get told it, like even if you're told the story that you just said, people still don't get it.
1: Well, this is, I think, an important question. Um, and the question is, we often wait for, uh, for something to happen for us to grow. <laughs> you know, It's usually, and it's an event outside of our uh, doing. It's something that feels external. So the question is, can we uh, get ahead of the curve? What if it? Yeah. And, and so I have a colleague I'm working with, uh, Dan Apple, who's in a thing called process education, and he's talks a lot about self-growth. Can we become a self-grower? And and there are not a lot of people around who I think are self-growers. So self-growers actually seek out difficult situations. They they're constantly asking the question, "What now? Is do I need this? Is what's what's serving?" and that's a different way of living than sort of being passively waiting for something to happen. And then waking up, what if we wake up and are coming more conscious every day? And, you know, as those of you who have read uh, Carlos Castaneda years ago, he said, you know, death is always sitting there on your left shoulder. So if you live each day, knowing that, uh, that we will die, <laughs> we will become worm food. Um, Then you ask the question each day, am I doing what I need to be doing? Is it in line with who I am? And I think that you can get ahead of the curve and not wait, but you can make those decisions before stuff happens. But that requires a different kind of focus and attitude about living, I think. Embracing death. Um, So I couldn't help but think, as I was listening to your
0: book, about michael pollan's book how to change your mind i don't know if you've read it but essentially the tool the tool that he's using isn't
1: stories it's it's psychedelics psychedelics yeah
0: and and i I kind of felt like as i was listening that I, i could have swapped in psychedelics to stories so i was thinking i wonder whether richard thinks another title for the book is how stories can be used to change your mind how to change your mind with stories as opposed to how to change your mind with psychedelics.
1: Uh, I think that's a good point. And um, so we we won't get into a debate about psychedelics here. Um, um, Having grown up in that era where people were first experimenting with psychedelics, um, um, I have in my history, I knew people who jumped out of windows on trips because they thought they could fly and it had very bad consequences you know um but it's clear that it can have some benefit probably for some people but i think that um what we have to understand is is our the stories we're living in get wired in so donald hebb uh, as a neuropsychologist uh, kind of came up with this idea that uh neurons that fire together, wire together. And so there's great benefit to that. So we develop routines and things that we don't have to think about. You can read the paper and brush your teeth and probably do something else at the same time because those are automatic uh, routines in the brain. The bad side or the downside of that is is that, um, is that things get wired in and the stories we're living in get wired in. So probably what a psychedelic does is it kind of it breaks up the wiring or it, it it loosens the the grip of those of of that way of seeing yourself in the world. Um so I I think we can use stories to change our life and it takes practice. And so so you you don't you don't replace a, a story that you've been telling yourself for 30 years just by flipping a switch. Um and that's Absolutely. why people go to psychotherapy. And, and so, you know, a psychotherapist is not enmeshed in your story. They, you know, they, they, they haven't. Li- they're not living inside of the story, and they realize it's just a story that you're telling yourself, and it's just that you believe it's the way things are. <laughs> it's you your know, conclusion. It's your conclusion, and and you can't see beyond that story. And so, part of their job is to help you begin thinking and seeing. Maybe there's a different way I could think about myself, and my relationships, and the way I behave, and that takes practice to replace that habit of thinking you have to replace it with a new way of thinking and it takes a while for that new way to get rewired to wire in and to develop a its own kind of root structure so that with time um maybe that old wiring uh, becomes compost <laughs> and you know and, and it still sometimes emerges you go golly there's that old story i thought i was done with that old story but here it is and and, and but at least you can have, you can laugh about it and you can notice it and see it for what it is. And no longer does it have this death grip on you, you know, like around your neck. Um, it, you have some distance from it. So I think um uh you know, are, are psychedelics a useful way to, to, to break that up? I I don't know. I don't know that you know, I know that that there's some really interesting research with PTSD and 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 what is PTSD? People, it's not it's not the event that keeps on wounding them it's their memory of it that's the story that keeps playing in their head the ruminations that keep going around and around and around and and it is difficult to disrupt that and that's you know those things are are very difficult to change and so it may be that um biochemically there's a way of doing it that's effective long term i don't have a conclusion about that but i know that there's they're having some benefit and effect for people so um if we can somehow loosen the wiring up, then maybe we can change it.
0: Yeah, well, you talk actually in your book about things that pollen was talking about. I mean, at least not just pollen, because of course, I I quite read in this topic, but psychedelics are being used for end of life fear. And you actually specifically talk about that. Actually, you've done work in that space and how stories can help move along. Uh, Talk about depression. And it's the stories you're carrying around. It's really, once you get into depressed mode, how do you break out? Because you've got this wiring that's telling yeah. you, you're bad, you're unhappy. How am I going to get out? The world is black. And so these stories that we're telling are also just another method of unwiring rewiring.
1: That's right, yeah. So there's, there's some really interesting things about uh, like reminiscence. So we know there's a kind of reminiscence that is called instrumental reminiscence. And it's using a story from the past where we've been successful in something and sort of reminding ourselves of that success when we're facing a current challenge. And there's a huge amount of literature on this. I was involved with a big project at Navant Health where we were training volunteers to sit with patients and tell their stories. But there was a kind of a certain kind of story. There are two kinds of stories. One was an instrumental story. Tell me about time. Other times you've faced challenges and you got through them. And the, the the literature would suggest that when people get a chance to tell those stories, it it boosts their uh, resilience in dealing with the current challenge. It reminds them that they have resources that they maybe have forgotten because when you're in the hospital, you're infantilized. They've taken away your clothing. You know, everything is done. You know, you're 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 in their control. So that's an important story. Um, but also um, there's a kind of uh, reminiscence called integrative reminiscence. So what happens is we often, if we think of our life as a book with chapters, we have a tendency sometimes if there was a difficult chapter filled with pain or uh, trials, we often will exclude that from the story, from the book, (laughs) we excise it. And um, and but there's great value in seeing uh, the role even of difficult things. and And one of the questions, what what could i what did I learn from this situation? Uh, how did this change me? And what's the meaning of this? and and finding meaning in your life becomes important, especially as we're getting older and maybe facing death. What has this journey meant? Even the difficult things. And having a listening ear, having another person who's there to, Be a witness to the story is, I think, a crucial process, and um, can bring you a great deal of sense of um, wholeness and peace. Oh, this has been a good life.
0: It's key who's doing that with you because you need to feel safe about it. This idea that storytelling can build uh, resilience—of course, it develops imagination, as you talk about—and it can even help your mental health, as we were just mentioning. I wanted to talk about a generation that we're familiar with, but uh, increasingly less available, is the greatest generation, those who fought in the Second World War. And my observation has been that they didn't want to tell their stories to people who wouldn't understand them. So the number of times, as you know, I, I worked with a lot of veterans I I would hear things like, well, I I don't want to talk to these people. I only talk to people who've been there. Oh, he died without ever telling his story. And my my thought is on balance. Of course, they suffered from all sorts of mental health issues per se, but they also had a form of resilience, which I would, you know, maybe in a complimentary talk about stiff upper lip. Because if it's woe is me, oh, God, look, my fingernail's broken the end of the world is nigh. Uh, I I wanted you to to break that down for me in your Mm. perspective, because I love the idea of building resilience. I also, of course, as you know, like the idea of knowing your family history and heirlooms and all that, but it, it just, I felt like within that, that texture it's complicated.
1: It is complicated. And I, I, you know, every person has got their journey to live and you can't say to your father or grandparent, uh, you know, you need to tell the story, you know, um, damn you know, it, <laughs> you know, and um, so I, I think there are a few things to say about that um, is that often, because people witnessed horrific things during the war, you know, you know, just things that for most of us would be just beyond horror, and they witnessed it firsthand um that's indelibly imprinted on their brain and to find language to even talk about it i think is hard so you know to tell the story it's like how can you even tell the story it, it, it is it is so charged there's it it, it was it, it was um it's such a deep wound to the soul <laughs> to see those things so you know holocaust survivors are another you know in my experience people who were Holocaust survivors to be able to talk about the the, um, horrors that they witnessed and experienced. Um, So I think that they, they, one, they need a devoted listener who deeply respects the story, who's willing to be patient with it. And I know in your own experience with your father, he didn't talk for a long time about his experiences. And uh, I've got a colleague who's in LA um he was just written a screenplay about his father and after his father died his father was one of the first people into Birkenwald uh Buchenwald one of the the concentration camps he also witnessed he was uh uh right behind uh uh Patton as Patton was going through Italy and and witnessed some horrific things happen you know he lost most of his platoon in an ambush on a on a bridge you know and um he he just couldn't talk about those things and so he transmuted them into other that energy into something else it just was it it was just unspeakable for him um so we have to make space for people and when people are ready they will tell the story and sometimes they uh they may never be ready in this life to tell that story because it's just more than they can even begin to get their heart and head around um and i don't know what it is that suddenly gives people the courage or it gives them the space to say it's time for me to tell the story of what happened um but you're right about that generation that was a generation of people who went through difficult things you know and having a broken nail it's no big deal (laughs) you have no idea you know what 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 you know and and in some ways we're, you know we're going to have the the a generation of people who are going through wildfires in the west here in this country and, and and deep floods and tragedies and um and and what's going on in Afghanistan right now and you know there's just so we have no shortage of of human tragedy some of it caused by nature and some of it caused by us <laughs> a lot yeah, of it caused yeah. by us um, when it's and it's
0: possibly caused yeah. by us i feel tragedy is your right word but when it's caused yeah. by nature, it's a little bit different.
1: It is a little different. And when it's at the hands of other human beings, it seems to have a different quality, you know? Um, so we have to find ways to to not, um, is, is to be able to talk about, it. it's hard for me personally, I'm watching what's going on in Afghanistan and I am so heartsick about it. And I am totally powerless about doing anything about it. I don't know, you know, but there are some things I can do, you know, uh, those who are refugees, there are organizations that are helping those people. So I can give some of my treasure to, that will I know will go to help those people. Um, and so it's, it's incumbent upon us to feel responsibility for our fellow human beings. And so there are things we can do and we can't numb ourselves. And, and what happens is for us as humans is that the enormity of the problems overwhelms us. And it numbs us out to the point where we don't act.
0: Well, can I can go back often... to the original conversation, which is yeah. that there are so many problems out there. There are so many areas where you could do good. So I feel like we need to circle back. We need to swing back into who we are and what we're about in order to focus our attentions maybe we can't fix everything, but we're going to focus our resources where we feel like there's the most return. And I'm not asking for, you know, it's like philanthropy or whatever, where you feel like there's a stronger connection to that. Because I've never been to Afghanistan. Yes, I'm absolutely, it's disastrous, it's tragic, but I don't have a personal connection into it. So I feel like I would rather have and use my resources and help where there's something that's into me. And I think we need to do a little bit more of that too.
1: Well, I think that's, that's the thing that confronts us all. I have this conversation with my wife all the time about this. Uh, she she's <laughs> someone who um, we, you know, she, all kinds of appeals come across her desk every day uh, in, the, in the mail. And, and, and and she can't throw them away. <laughs> She's they pile up. But I go, what are you going to do with all these appeals? And 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 she feels like she you know wants to help everybody. And 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 I said, you have to you have to decide where where are we going to put our resources? We don't have unlimited resources. So we have only so much money that we can give to where what. And, and once we make that decision, then you can wish those people well, and know that someone else for them it will be the right thing to give to. And I think that's the kind of uh, uh, reckoning that we each have to do and um and be reflective about that. What's our values? What is it that most calls me and and let me put my resources there and and then bless the rest of them that they that they find what they need because the, the needs of the world are unlimited, they're infinite. <laughs> they're infinite. But resources aren't. And but yeah, my personal resources. But but maybe you know, among all of us, we all can you know, if we find the things that we really uh, feel drawn to, that we can make a difference. Um, so I think that's that is the dilemma, is really as you framed it, is is how do we begin to um, know who we are in the midst of a world in pain and in need and uh, and do what we think is most aligned and authentic to ourselves.
0: because going back to this notion of resilience, stories can help build our resilience. Oh my fingernail's broken. All right, so I'll use a story to fix and how that's not a big deal, right. But we're, we're it's very simple today. Everything's a disaster. Everything is is, is overwhelming. climate, disasters here, fires, Gosh, you know, the, the list is endless. And so it can be very quick to be overwhelmed. And then, then, and I call it displace my being with doing good because i got to fix this other stuff. And, and we can be overwhelmed. And in that, we lose our resilience because I feel like that greatest generation had resilience and didn't even need to tell the story. Whereas today, and I don't know if you call it under the destorification concept that you,
2: you mm-hmm. talk
0: about, which I really thought was interesting space within your, within the book, but we, we've kind of got into the, you know, the, the me, the me story. Everything's all about me and and we're losing communion and, and our grip with community and being of service to others. Well, then we jump on anything to be of service to look, look, I'm doing good. But, uh, you know, so it, as much as it's all about me, I don't even know who I am. I make me through Instagram that's the me that I portray. That's the story I want to give, but it's not tied into who I am. And, and if I'm doing good to be part of society, it's kind of all over the place and not structured and rooted. And I feel that's where the resilience breaks down.
1: Yeah, it's a, it, it, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing going on with uh, social media and younger generations. Although, you know, it's interesting. There are a couple of researchers I know real well here at Emory. Uh, uh, Marshall Duke and Robin Favuch, and they've been doing work around resilience and story for generation around intergenerational stories. Mm. And And their research is pretty definitive is that kids who grow up knowing their family stories, both the good and the bad, the difficult and the wonderful, um, develop uh, that's probably the best predictor of them having resilience and high self-esteem. And if you think about it is, you know, we, we're, we're not exactly tabula rasa when we come in, but we, we certainly don't have any stories when we show up. Right. <laughs> you know, I think we have lots of predispositions and inclinations and all kinds of things. Um, but even, we may even have story epigenetically passed on. Yeah. You know, we know. I, would, I
3: have for,
0: to
1: believe the, there's a bit of that. The distress over generations somehow makes its way into the genome. Um, but uh, so we, we don't have our own stories of resilience, of getting through difficulty. Uh, so but we do have our parents stories and our grandparents stories. And until we develop our own body of stories, then um, the, those stories can serve us and and do serve us and when we face difficulties going to go, well, grandma got through that. I guess I can get through that. Or, you know, you know, you know, my dad saw all kinds of horrific things during the war. And this little problem I've got with my flat tire, this is just small potatoes. I can deal with this you know this is not the end of the world because i missed a meeting or something like that so um and and so this becomes a cultural thing and you know i write about uh, the inuit in canada and uh they don't get angry about anything right. you know i thought that was brilliant it, it, isn't that fascinating it's like but you know you know something bad you know somebody spills hot tea on the on the igloo floor and damages the ice floor nobody goes
2: hey, oh God, you know
1: they don't you know you know um uh, yeah, they go oh too bad uh and that's it you know they've spent three weeks making a, a fishnet and it breaks the first time they they you know and so like, oh, i guess we have got to fix it so um i i think we have a, a way of catastrophizing at least in yeah. american culture i don't know if it's true you know across europe and western culture but so um i think we can, in the we woe can, is
0: me category right it's it is woe, woe is, is me. me
1: you know you know, my light, this is yeah you know, yeah so um We all could benefit from a wider point of view, A wider perspective about what's valuable and what's important, what's not. And most of it's small potatoes. Most of it's not a big deal. And some of it is a big deal. And that's maybe where we should figure out where we need to put our attention. Um, And, and, you know, young people are trying to find their way, you know, when they're making their Instagram identity and all that stuff. they're, They're trying to figure out who am I? And they're doing that because they're in a they're in a vacuum about who they are. They're, they have not had stories to kind of uh, build the uh, the foundational structure of their personhood. That uh, that have that can that have a kind of a solidity. And so, in the absence of that, they stories will be. They'll create stories. Yeah. They'll find. They'll go to their social groups and you know, what's the story that that's the right story to be telling and all of that and they it's it's not serving them. So the best thing that you know you could say to parents is you know is like if you want to serve your kids, you know, you don't don't take the social media away from them. Kids who grow up with a good foundational story about who they are and and who know their family stories, they don't need those other stories. Those stories are hollow and shallow and 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 like tin cups. Not personal.
0: Know. They're not actually related to them.
1: They're not authentic. And so the young people I know who have grown up in in environments where uh, they they they're they're doing fine,
2: <laughs>
1: and you know sometimes people say well, I don't think my kids care about my stories and they don't listen they're listening, you know sometimes they'll just you know you know years will go oh by, dad and,
0: oh dad and, not again
1: yeah that's right but they remember those stories and they'll 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 by verbatim tell you that story back years later and you go oh I didn't even think you were listening to that so oh they were listening. They're taking it in they're making notes they're you know in their head they're, they're they're um they're assembling those stories so um i think we almost have to give them more credit than than we sometimes do and and yes there's some very destructive things about social media and we can see it all over the place and the best thing you can give your kids is your stories about the things that have mattered and that the challenges you've had uh, those are invaluable gifts And so that's part of the treasures. I would put those in the category of treasures. Um, Those are valuable gifts that will be things that they can put in their backpack and carry with them and pull out uh, when they're facing a big challenge.
0: I downloaded, uh, you have lots of great resources in the book. I downloaded the 20 questions you suggest to. that's um,
1: That's from those researchers. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I will put the link of that into the show. Richard, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show talk about this great topic. I, I, I mean, I had a bunch of other questions about stories and business and, and the, the tales and, and uh, how, why we should be telling tall tales. Uh, a lot of fun things within the book that can inspire and fire up our creativity. What would you like people to think, do, be, uh, for the end of this particular conversation, and where can people go in the do mode to uh, find your book and then follow what you're up to?
1: Well, they they can find it on Amazon. You know, obviously they can find more resources at StoryIntelligence.com. So we've got uh, lots of resources for people who want to learn more. Blogs and interviews with other uh, kind of uh, heavyweights in the field. Um, but uh, the book's available on Amazon and. Uh, I would say the thing to do is um, start uh, taking time to value and to be enchanted by listening to and tell, telling stories, create spaces for that in your life. And I think it will enrich you in ways that you can't even imagine.
0: Beautiful. Richard, we've moved from, uh, what was the expression you said, from aging to saging, uh, I feel in that expression. Thank you so much for being part of the show, Richard. It's a pleasure to have you, and good luck with everything. And certainly for everyone listening, go and check out Story Intelligence. Master your story, master your... Thank you a lot. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minter Dialogue. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintodal.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
3: Arms of a woman despise revenges and struggle to see live for the challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger.